Hi, I'm the 1995 MAKO president and 2016 MAKO's Marilyn Prisoner Award recipient, Ricky Spector, and I'm proud to present for your listening pleasure the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, Policy Associate at MAKO, joined as always by my co-host, MAKO's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. How are you? A little bit tired. We have been <laughs> uh, very busy. Michael, let's jump right into it. Yesterday, you and I were joined by MAKO President and Arundel County Councilman Jerry Walker as we visited Washington, Allegheny, and Garrett counties to give the commissioners and the government there an update of MAKO's advocacy here in Annapolis. Yes, this this type of year, actually the, the stretch of time that we're in the middle of right now is kind of a capsule for what MAKO is doing with and for our county members during the time that the General Assembly is not in session. I mean, from, right. from time to time, I, I, I get this question, well, you know, what's, what does MAKO do? We know we know you're out there advocating and, and lobbying for counties during the session, and we see that, we understand that, but what do you all do? Are you, you all just, you know, twiddling thumbs until your, until your conference or that sort of thing? But uh this this stretch of time is is kind of that capsule. I mean, just yesterday, uh, with with President Jerry Walker, we went out and and had time with three different counties, um, their elected uh, elected officials. And I mean, it's it's a good exchange. It's a good two way exchange for you know we give an update on things that are happening in Annapolis and with the association and what's on tap for the conference, but also get a chance to hear a little bit um, of what's on their mind or what their local issues look like. Yeah, it's really important to to go up and visit them and hear exactly what's going on. And this is not just Western Maryland, right, Michael? This is a tradition. Every year, the MAKO president and the executive director visit all 24 jurisdictions in Maryland and hear from those locally elected officials, what's going on there, and what's important to them that we can relay here in Annapolis. It's a it's a healthy thing, and and doing it this time of year can be useful because you know, the 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 state legislature is not all that far back in the rearview mirror. So a lot of things we can still be recapping from from the session that's gone by. We're looking ahead to the conference. Um, counties have just finished up their budget, and in a lot of in a lot of uh, cases, their busy time is what they're in right now. So uh, that's, you know, that's it's, it's, it's good timing to get out and connect with them, whether it's to be on the agenda for the county commissioners in sort of a public setting, we mm-hmm. did one of those, um, or to just have a face-to-face and, and talk, you know, sort of offline. Uh, e- either of those can be valuable. Um, I think I, I like when we get feedback from the locals that they say, they appreciate us traveling to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it's valuable for us to hear what's on their mind. And we're constantly refining the things that are worth talking about after hearing from you know from them about their issues. And just visiting those counties, I mean, it's, it's extremely valuable, you know, from my perspective to, to visit all of the counties and to really get an idea of exactly what's going on there, get the landscape a bit. I think it's a win-win um, for the the counties and for Mako writ large. Yeah, and uh, doing this on on Tuesday is right on the heels for me personally of getting back from 
another conference, the National Association of Counties, just had its annual conference and expo um, is in in Nashville, Tennessee this year. So a, a number of we, we had a we had a sizable Maryland delegation down there. We had uh, a pretty big presence on their policy and steering committees. Uh, they have the same kind of peer exchange sessions and a lot of content for you know, best practices across county governments and so forth. So it's similar to our summer conference in terms of content and yeah. panels and sessions of that nature. Right. I mean, there's another layer of diversity of presentations, as you would imagine, because even though we're frequently impressed by the the, the breadth of issues that show up in Maryland, and we, you know, we're, we're in the midst of just yesterday, we're at the western tip of Maryland, and uh, later today, we're going to be almost to the far farthest uh, farthest eastern shore, you know, then the lower eastern shore will be the eastern part of the state. Um, the the breadth of things that happen nationwide with, you know, some, the counties in some of the western states are really focused on public lands issues mm-hmm. and ranching and, and you know, mining extractions and so forth. Uh, you've got different issues with places that have water crises and, and, and things like that. So uh, there's a giant smorgasbord of stuff going on at the NACO conference. I, I came away with a number of good connections, um, had some good conversations with with vendors who I think could plug in and be beneficial to, to Maryland counties. Um, so I, I, I always get something out of those exchanges, whether it's, you know, one, once again, some of it is going to a session and actually being in the room while people present, but an awful lot of it is just who you're next to in the lunch line. And lo and behold, that's a conversation that's worth a lot to, to both of you. And that happened to be multiple times. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're, you know, our pitches for our summer conference. And I hear so many people say that, you know, I was in the line for lunch or I was in the ice cream line during a break and I met this person or that person. And I learned so much that I can bring back to my county. And I think, you know, the NACO conference and the MACO conference both bring that kind of camaraderie, the connections, and then, of course, the content that is invaluable to take back home. Yeah, so so the the next couple of days continue this idea of Mako in miniature. Uh, later today, uh, you and I and a few of our colleagues and, and a number of elected officials will, will be down in Somerset County for for the the annual Taws uh, Crab Feast and Clam Bake. This is it's a big community event in Crisfield. Uh, it's also you know gained all all sorts of sort of notoriety as a big political event. So I'll be shocked if we don't see Governor Hogan, uh, probably Ben Jealous, and and all sorts of other candidates for office will be down down at that event, and you know talking to talking to people who are thinking and talking politics as well as as just out you know enjoying um, enjoying the the nice weather. It looks like we're actually going to have nice yeah. weather this Thank year. Thank goodness. Last but, year it was so hot. I mean, I, I, people were just melting into the asphalt. Well, that's, it's, it's a tradition. It's a tradition at Taws that it's it, it's it's almost like they schedule they, they consult the farmer's almanac and they schedule <laughs> it on the hottest day of the summer and it's on asphalt and it's kind of a low-lying spot. So it feels like it's 140 degrees most days. If it's only like 100 100 10, uh, we'll count that as a win, yeah. So, Michael, what do you think in terms of this being an election year? How is Taz different? I mean, do you think just more people show up, or is there are there more conversations that happen? Is there more policy being discussed, more strategy? I mean, you've been to Taz in election years, out of election years. I mean, what do, do you see any big difference there, or is it mostly the same folks that tend to show up 
each and every year. I think, I mean, the the presence of the candidates themselves, and we'll see all these parades of people wearing matching T-shirts right. and polo shirts and right. that sort of thing and wearing their hats and handing out stickers and so forth. So that's, that's like an extra layer. And I mean, I mean, you and I aren't there to support candidates. Right. I mean, we're, you know, we're policy people as opposed to politics people in, in our roles with MAKO. But you can't help but have that be a little bit contagious that there's a sense in the air that, you know, that, oh, here comes here comes so-and-so and we'll see the local candidates from the eastern shore. Right. They'll all be present too as well as some statewide people and so forth. So I, I don't know. I think, it, I think it adds an extra layer, but it's always an event where – I mean, this time of year, we're in July. It's it's a little bit like it's like Christmas in July mm-hmm. to some degree, where um, this is an opportunity to connect with an awful lot of people. And I don't know. Over the course of today, I mean, you know, you and I will probably end up having a dozen conversations each with stakeholders or lobbyists and plenty of legislators and so forth. And we'll get a lot done. I mean, there's 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 so much you can do face to face. Right. Yeah, I mean, email is a wonderful tool, yeah. but but looking somebody in the eye and getting some body language it, that you can't you can't get that by typing yeah. characters to each other. You right? can't replicate that. And, and and Taz is so important because it's rare that you have all of these people in one place. I mean, yeah. it's really unique in that way. And I'm certainly looking forward to it. We will have crisscross the state, as you said, between yeah. yesterday and today. And then tomorrow, we actually have a strategy session with the Mako County staffers. So these are the folks who work for individual counties who are very close with Michael and I and our colleagues during the legislative session and also in the interim. We, we talk to them throughout the session. We have meetings with them throughout the session. We strategize. And tomorrow, we're going to have our annual staffers retreat where we will get together. We'll talk policy. We'll talk strategy. We'll give updates. We'll hear about Mm -hmm. the local races that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and and what they've heard back in their respective counties. And again, I think that is another huge benefit both to them and to us because they're on the ground in their respective counties. We, we Mm -hmm. We talk to them regularly, but to get an update from everybody, again, having everybody in one place extremely extremely beneficial right so that's but the, and so so there there's a nice capsule about you know what what our association is doing with and, and four counties during this you know the interim or the summertime um, we're we're doing some traveling we're doing a lot of talking we're doing a lot of thinking and sort of sharpening the saw a little bit here and there and I don't know. I mean, if there's if there's a cold beer lands in my hand at some point during the Taw's Crab Feast, I probably won't complain too much about that. I think that's that. a pretty good bet. That's a pretty good bet. But we'll, we'll update you on, on the next episode and let you know how Michael did with his cold beer on the uh, warm asphalt down in Taw's. All right, so let's, let's shift gears here. Uh, last episode, we did a special episode on new tech driving new policy. Before that, though, we were talking about the recent primary election, and we had a lot of results sort of up in the air. We now have some some new information for you. So we have, Michael, one race is certified, but it maybe is not settled. Baltimore County, though, is wrapped up. Johnny Olszewski, he was leading uh, Senator Jim Broshin before a recount, and uh, Senator Broshin did request a recount that was funded by the county because the margin of votes between Johnny O and Senator Broshin was within 0.1%. Right. So after that recount, Johnny O... Uh, actually increased his lead. He won that primary election by 17 votes and will now face Republican Al Redmer 
in the general election for Baltimore County Executive. And that'll be a closely watched election. Those are two credible candidates. Both of them have experience from the House of Delegates and elsewhere. Um, both of them you know, have, have, I think, laid out a vision for what next steps make sense for Baltimore County mm-hmm. and what they might be doing on land use and fiscal issues and so forth. So, so I think, you know, that'll, that'll be a, a genuine two-party race and uh, probably a lot of attention and investment in, in that, in that uh, November contest. So that'll be one of the, one of the hottest, closest uh, county races, I think, for November. Another hot and close race, mm-hmm. the Democratic primary for Montgomery County Executive. That race has been certified. However, it may not be over. Right. So, so yeah, certified sounds like that's the end, but that's nominally that's the stage that opens the door for a recount. Right. And here again, uh, the numbers are within that. Are, actually, I, I just guess they're, ju- they're just above the margin. This this one tenth of a percent. Yes. Uh, the margin is uh, last count seventy nine. Yeah. Votes. So seventy nine votes. The Board of Elections certified the results on Monday. Josh Kurtz of Maryland Matters reports that. Uh, Blair is going to seek a recount. And as we mentioned earlier, in order for that recount to be funded by the county, he'd have to be within 0.1% of the votes of those two candidates. So we're talking here, of course, about uh, Blair, and we're talking about Elrich, who won by 79 votes. 0.1% would be 75 votes, Ah, Michael. Yeah, so So, just barely outside. Just barely outside. And the Board of Elections estimates that it's going to cost around $190,000 for this recount. Uh, Mr. Blair will have to fund that recount out of his own pocket, right. but um, they expect the recount to take about a week, and we will see what happens. But we also have another interesting twist here with Nancy Florine running as an independent. And we, we spoke about this as a question mark as of a couple of weeks ago or a couple of episodes ago, but but she now has, has made her intentions clear. Nancy Florine is a sitting council member in Montgomery County. She's one of the at-large members, was term-limited out because of a, a charter change in Montgomery. Uh, she didn't run in these primary elections, but uh, has expressed her interest in seeking uh, an opportunity to run as an independent or as an unaffiliated candidate uh, for the November race. And that adds a new wrinkle here. Uh, as of a month or so ago, you and I on this podcast, and I think all other observers, were basically saying the Democratic primary is tantamount to a general election in Montgomery, given the general election margins in past years. And right. we know we know, um, you know Robin Ficker is the nominee of the Republican Party, and he will run a spirited campaign toward November. We right. know that. Uh, but the numbers are against a Republican challenger in Montgomery County. Now, if you have another Democrat running essentially as an independent, is there a chance that, you know, Elrich and Florine could battle it out and, you know, take each other's votes away? And Mr. Ficker will run that campaign you mentioned and things could get a little bit dicey in Montgomery County. I think. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I think neither you nor I have the, the sort of deep roots in Montgomery County to to sort of explore the politics there more clearly than some people who are on the ground. And there will be lots of words written about this race as it shapes up. Right. But I, there certainly will be a lot of members of the Democratic Party 
who on first blush will be thinking about that sort of ideological scale or a particular issue that they care about and say, well, you know, is, is, is Mark Elrich closer to what I believe in or is Nancy Florine closer to what I believe in? Uh, I, you know, in, in, in many cases, I voted for both of them multiple times right. as an at-large representative on the council. They've both served three terms. So, so they're both relatively well-known. They've got track records before the full county. You say, well, gee, you know, who am I more likely to, you know, agree with if they step in and become county executive? Right. But then you have the added dimension of, I'm a, I'm a loyal party member and uh, I believe in the primary process. And, you know, maybe I'm worried about what you said, sort of a triangulation and you split the Democratic vote and, and create an opportunity for a Republican victory. If right. you're a true blue dem, you, you probably don't like that outcome. I think that makes this a challenging decision for a lot of Democrats, independent of what you think about the candidates themselves, their views, or what they might do as county executive. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, and you know, this is kind of something we saw a number of years ago in the, in the U.S. Senate. You know, Joe Lieberman mm-hmm. in uh, Connecticut was a well-known and, and, and sort of a highly placed Democratic U.S. senator, lost in his primary and ran as an independent and won. Right. And he ran saying, I'm going to be a Democrat. I'm going to caucus with the Democrats. And you believe in my values and so forth. He prevailed yep. as an independent um, and then you know, basically rejoined the Democratic Party after after doing so. Uh, I'm not sure what the message from Nancy Florine might or will look like in this process, but uh, I think there's you know there's an electoral and ideological challenge there for for Democrats in Montgomery County ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I envision now if you're a Democrat in Montgomery County, you sort of write out every issue you care about, and then you check the box for which one mostly aligns with your view there. And there are going to be so many where Elrich and Florine are probably on the same page. It may come down to a single issue in Montgomery County. But then you have to think, okay, so if I think I'm more philosophically aligned with Nancy Florine, am I willing to go against the party here and go against my party primary? These are the, you know, this is my party's voters who have spoken. And some people would say that should be the end of it, even if I prefer another candidate. You you take what the voters say. Absolutely. Tricky. Very (laughs) tricky. Just a few other races that we talked about before and we'll update you on here. Elizabeth Walsh in Howard County, District 1 for County Council. She was up at last time we spoke by two votes over incumbent County Councilman John Weinstein. There was a recount, though, and she increased her margin, actually, to six votes. So she wins that race by six votes. Incumbent uh, County Commissioner Jim Moran in Queen Anne's County. He is the at-large commissioner at last time we spoke. He was up on Helen Bennett, his challenger. He actually prevailed after the absentee ballots and the provisional ballots were all counted, won by 52 votes. And Laura Price, Talbot County Councilwoman, defeated Lisa Gezzi by 23 votes. So they will all move on to the general election in November. Right. And, and a couple noteworthy things from there. I mean, in addition to people having to spend an extra week and a half pacing the floors and, and twiddling thumbs and waiting for these counts to get finished up, which is tough enough. Yes. Um, you, you now have some interesting dynamics. Howard County, um, in the incumbent, uh, John Weinstein, was the only council member who was eligible to run again. Right. So he was potentially the last 
torchbearer of institutional knowledge, just just having run the meetings and and conducted that public business. So now you're going to have a five member county council uh, with no one returning who, who's who's served before. Um, that's manageable. We've mm-hmm. had counties who've done that before. It's not the end of the world. And that's where staff really comes into play. Right? Yeah, that's that, that's true. And and they'll have they'll have some turnover with staff too. Mm-hmm. But uh, as a, as a practical matter, that's that's a, an interesting and uh, and you know, a noteworthy dynamic in, in, in that county. Uh, also, you know, Queen Anne's County, we've mentioned, uh, is, a, is a place where turnover has become the norm. And for, and for Commissioner Moran, he has an opportunity now in the general, if he prevails in the general election, uh, there could be a, a couple commissioners possibly um, advancing to get reelected for a second term. And that's uh, out of the ordinary for Queen Anne's County, to say the least. Very much so. And we talked about that in an earlier episode, if you're interested. But Queen Anne's County is certainly a different dynamic there in terms of electing incumbents back into office. Michael, we did have another twist this week, another situation involving Russia. So, Really? We're doing Russia now? We're doing Russia now. (laughs) It's a big deal. So we saw actually a company that handles part of the state's voter registration database was purchased by a Russian oligarch. Now, there is no evidence that this Russian oligarch had any influence over the past election or that he has any influence moving forward. His company says he has no access to the database, but the FBI showed up. They were investigating. They wanted to inform the leadership here in Maryland of what was going on. And I think they probably did the right thing by informing the public that here's what we know. There's no evidence of wrongdoing. We don't think there'll be any wrongdoing moving forward. But again, we have this, this outside player, this outside influence namely Russia, coming up time and time again in in a way that it could impact our elections, not just here in Maryland, but throughout the nation. Right. So, I mean, if if historically we think of elections, just the conduct of elections as sort of a two days every four years or every two years, we have a couple of days of, of flurry of activity right. and then things get nice and quiet. A couple of people just show up, turn on the machines, right. and everything <laughs> yeah. just works. Everybody right? punch the buttons, yeah. we Nobody... tally them up, right. you, you tell the newspapers and it's over, it's over right? right? Well, I think you know what we're learning through this cycle is the administration of elections is a hands-on process. <laughs> you have to have backups and fail-safes and all that sort of thing. And Okay, so there's sensitivities. I mean, you know, this is the world we live in. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got the FBI involved and we've got, uh, you know, international intrigue and so forth at a level that no one expected. So, you know, maybe in the weeks ahead, we'll still be talking about election issues. I don't know. I thought we were done with this for a while, at least till, you know, October, November. Maybe it'll still be um, still be uh, something we have to talk about. Right? <laughs> Again, no evidence that anything was tampered with. There's no evidence that uh, this oligarch has any right. influence moving forward. But Michael, I I have to ask, I mean, I'm sure there are companies in Guam that are like total cyber wonks and they're really good at this kind of stuff. Yeah, can't uh, we just play it safe and yeah, go with I mean, somebody we trust? We should reach out to, to Guam. We trust them. We know them. I think and, a visit uh, is in order. we got to uh, set that up. I think it's definitely in order. So maybe they'll be down at Toss today. Everybody else is going to be there. So who knows? I like that. Yeah. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will give you an update on the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, also known as the Kerwin Commission. We do have some new developments there, potentially significant developments. We'll talk about the Kerwin Commission after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, back with Michael Sanderson. And Michael, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, we have done an entire episode on the Kerwin Commission. We've talked about the Kerwin Commission at length on various episodes of this podcast. We also have a lot of coverage on our Conduit Street blog. So if you're looking for that, you can just search Kerwin on our blog. Plus, we have the we have key players who are going to be at our summer conference. Yes. Uh, Britt Kerwin is confirmed to be on a session with our county representatives. So we'll have and, an opportunity to, to and Maggie talk. McIntosh will right, be yeah. moderating the panels. Right. right. So so we'll have we'll have a number of the players lined up in front of the room. So so county officials and others can sort of hear it, you know, directly as to what the latest is on this front. But um, this is a topic everybody's talking about. We were talking about. Um, you know, Mako going out and meeting with county officials across the state, and the idea of what's what are the next steps on school funding. Everybody knows this commission has been meeting and they've gotten their extension and they've got big things in mind. Everybody's sort of waiting. You know, when do we get to see a draft report? When do I start seeing some numbers? And you know, what what specifics do they have? We're starting to see the beginnings uh, start to seep out here. Yeah. So just to reset the stage a bit, this commission was tasked with reviewing the state's education formulas, teacher credentials, you know, pathways for a college and career readiness, all sorts of, of things. And, and they really went through the entire public education system, and they're just sort of looking to do a refresh and an update. So the Kerwin Commission originally was set to present their final recommendations in December of last year. We talked extensively about that, and we were wondering how in the heck they were going to pull right. all this together <laughs> when it seemed like we were getting into October and we still hadn't seen numbers, the wealth formula and student weights, stuff of that nature. They backed off. They said we need some more time. They were granted an extension. They did release some preliminary recommendations, which turned into legislation. That bill passed, and they reconvened now after the 2018 legislative session and now what they've done is they've broken into four work groups to cost out the preliminary recommendations. So we have a work group on more resources for at-risk students. We have a work group on high-quality teachers and leaders. We have a work group on college and career readiness pathways. And then we have a work group on early childhood education. And Michael, last week, we talked about there was a significant development, and there certainly was. In the early childhood education work group, we got some numbers on pre-K. This is a highly anticipated part of the commission's recommendations, and the preliminary recommendations called for full-day pre-K for all four-year-olds in Maryland and full-day pre-K for uh, three-year-olds living in poverty. The numbers that we got last week were for four-year-olds at 300% of the federal poverty level. So if, if their family is at or below three times the poverty level. Exactly. So, yep. so not necessarily families who are deep in poverty, but relatively low income. And then also three-year-olds at that same level. And the numbers that came out are about a billion dollars. That's now, a B. That's it's a, a B, B not right? an M. Yeah. <laughs> and so they didn't talk about you know who would be paying for that. Would, would this be primarily funded by the state or what would they be asking the counties to do? But I think the billion dollars with a B, you could literally see a lot of the commissioner's jaws hit the floor. <laughs> and I was in the room, and, and I think some a lot of the commissioners were shocked by that number. We have some senators and delegates that were in that room, and you could see them thinking about, well, you know, how are we going to make this fit into the state budget? Even some of the education advocates in the room, I think, were a little bit shocked. And remember, this is only one part of the commission's recommendations. They're also talking about teacher pay. They want to increase teacher pay by 29 to 30 percent. Obviously, that's going to be a big number 
and then decreasing the amount of time that teachers are actually teaching in the classroom and giving them more opportunities for professional development and whatnot. So I just think it's important to to, to mention that billion dollars with a B is only one component of this. The numbers aren't finalized yet. The commission will release their final report in December. But as these numbers start to trickle out, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how folks react. And again, these recommendations are not going to turn into law. There's going to have to be a bill or multiple bills that go through the General Assembly. Everyone will have a chance to comment, but certainly a staggering number, the billion-dollar mark just for three- and four-year-olds yeah. living in relative poverty. So, I mean, with, with pre-K in particular, and like you said, this is only one piece of what we expect is going to be sort of a, a mosaic of different components that come together over the next few months. And, uh, you know, we can we can raise our suspicions about whether there's enough time for the commission, even with their extension, to be done by the end of this year. Yeah, but there's still a lot to do. Yeah, but let's take a minute on pre-K because mm-hmm. as a policy matter, I feel like – forgive me for this analogy, but if you're a video game player and you want to play – you want to play a, a, a game, a lot of times they have an opening screen that has a bunch of different sliders on it. Right. And you sort of play the settings that you want. You want things to be super hard or super, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, I mean, if you think about a pre-K policy that way, there's a multiple different dimensions where there's there's multiple settings. And it can be on or off or somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, one of them is you've talked about four-year-olds and Mm three-year-olds. So if you want to talk about offering pre-K, one fundamental question is, is your focus just four-year-olds that who are you know closest to being ready for kindergarten? Or are you thinking of this as let's do two years worth of you know pre you know pre-K education before you get to, to kindergarten age? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that itself is if you do both four-year-olds and three-year-olds, that's got a price tag. It also addresses, I mean, what's lying in the background here are a lot of people who feel that investments in early childhood education more than pay for themselves. That if right. you get kids in that setting, it reduces all sorts of outcomes later in life. So so that's one thing, four-year-olds and three-year-olds. The second one that, that you've already made mention to is, is this something that we need to offer to every child? Or is it just to select children, particularly based on income? No, or, I, and I know that there had some folks have asked the attorney general to weigh in and give an opinion on whether or not this would hold up and whether or not there would be challenges mm-hmm. from people who say, hey, just because my kid is not at three times the federal poverty level doesn't mean that you don't need to offer them pre-K when they're three or four years old. So that's another right. question looming in the background. Right. So, so you end up with the, the question of four-year-olds and three-year-olds? Um, you have a question of is this universal or is this sort of income determined? Right. And then uh, related to that but kind of a separate question is do you end up with the state providing this as a free service or does this end up being a, a sort of a sliding scale? At various times, both this commission and everybody who's looked at pre-K have thought about, well, maybe you make it universal, but you have a family contribution right. that is a function of income or a function of some other ability to pay. And you know the, the details TBA, but as a policy matter, that's kind of up in the air too. Maybe you say this is a billion-dollar commitment, but some fraction of that is going to come from the families. And then sort of looming in the background is, 
are, are we talking about compulsory education or are we talking about this as an option, exactly. as it's something to be – it must be made available for those who seek it. And I, I don't think there's, there's a major push for this to be a compulsory offering – um, but still, like that, that has an effect here because if you just make it available, particularly if you make it available at a price tag to the family, right. you, you certainly are going to have some families who opt out and decide not to do it and pick another option, whether it's a, a more conventional daycare option or something else. Anyway, there's there's all these different dimensions. The idea of Maryland's going to do public pre-K. Um, that does not end the conversation. That starts a conversation that rapidly branches out in a bunch of directions. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point is if this is not going to be compulsory, it's so hard to determine what the number will be because you don't know yeah. how many kids are actually going to go, how many families are going to send their kid, right. a three- or a four-year-old, to pre-K if it's not compulsory to do so. So it is difficult to come up with that number. The other big question looming in the background here is this is going to have to be a combination of public and private partnerships. Yeah, where, right? do we, where do we, we put the kids we and know, the teachers? Right? We know we don't have the room in our public schools to house all these three- and four-year-olds. Plus, yeah, you got to get the teachers. You're going you're gonna to need a lot more teachers here. And, you know, I, I, I think inevitably people start thinking about I'm going to have to build new schools you know, this is going to be a major, major undertaking for counties in particular. So there are a lot of moving parts here. Mm -hmm. You know, just you're right, just to say we're going to offer pre-K and then cut it right there. (laughs) It's not going to fly. It might fly on the campaign trail and people, you know, it sounds great to say, but we're the ones and this commission are the ones that have to actually dig in here and figure out how to make that work or not work for the state of Maryland. Yeah, and this is this is not a new concept. Uh, there are some states that have grappled with this and decided to move ahead and really, you know, expand and 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 provide broad pre-K offerings. Um, you know, Maryland is we're in the middle. We have pre-K of a, of a fashion in a variety right. of places, and and it looks it looks different in different parts of the state. So part of this is getting you know different parts of the state on the same page. But and, and again, this is complicated enough. If we were talking about just how do you solve a coherent and sort of consensus pre-K proposal by December, that would seem pretty daunting just itself. Not, then, not to mention that this is only one of at least a half a dozen equally sized pieces that they still have yet to bite off. I mean, th- this idea of you know, the enhancing the overall prestige and attractiveness and, and weight of the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a, noble a, cause. That's a yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great goal to articulate, but what, you know, what specifics do you, what do you write into a bill to make that happen? Um, you know, short of bags of money, which may be part of it. Uh, but there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to that to be fleshed out too. So anyway, here, here we are in the middle of July and we're counting, you know, we're counting in still months. We're not yet counting in weeks, but there's months left five for this months. for this group to to get done with their work. But five months, they really need to have like the ink should be dry right, right. by by holiday. You know, by the time we, by holiday time in in December, when we you're we, eating turkey we, and Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, they should it, have a draft. Yeah, and up. and like I can't see. I, I gotta say, I can't see right now from here to the time when this commission has a report in front of them that they're ready to vote on peace, but, you know, a decision meeting where they, here's 28 different proposals to vote on, and these are all in draft form. All right, who's who's in favor of item number one? That's just, 
I, I can't see from here to there. There's too much fog from the middle of July to that like November meeting when that ought to happen. And just getting, you know, just <laughs> that piece too, the voting on here are the 28 items that you have to vote on. They're not going to get consensus on that commission. There are going to be people who say you need to rewrite this, you need to rewrite that. So then going that's back, been, that's, and, I mean, that's in their DNA. Yeah, that, they, that have, is, they have revealed the members of this commission. I, I don't mean this as criticism, no, no. just as an they observation. They want to get it right. So there, there are people who are deeply committed and not all on the same page. And it, I don't think, I don't think it's as simple as when the Thornton Commission did this kind of stuff back in two thousand, two thousand one. Right. At the end of the day, they took some, you know, thirteen to eight votes. And then those things went in, and someone went eight to thirteen, and those stayed out. So, do you think that what is what is going to happen uh, here? At some point, know. does somebody have to put their foot down? You know, Doctor Crow and say, "Look, this is how it's got to be because we can't keep, we can't ask for another extension." Is that? I don't know. know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the end game looks like here. Uh, you, I mean, you'd have to think there's a good deal of pressure to put something on the table. Right. You've gotten one extension. It's already gone past both a political timetable and a practical timetable. So, you know, I, some people will say, let's let's bring this to a close, you know, even if there's some things that have to be punted to a future body or something like that. Right. I mean, that's that's another Annapolis Very way possible. is to say, all right, we're done on this, but this thing should go to a special study group and right. let's hear about it in two more years. Yeah, so so these groups will finalize <laughs> their their costing out of these recommendations. They'll They'll then present what they found to the full commission staff will then write up those recommendations then they'll have the vote and again yeah it, this, some of this could get punted some of this may be 13 to 8 votes or, or whatever the vote is and someone will have to put their foot down and say that's it we're going to move on but it, certainly the dna of this commission has not been to do that <laughs> it's been you know what let's go back we want to get consensus here let's hash this out right. and that takes time energy and effort from each and every commissioner and the commission staff. Well, the one thing that I can I can say from experience and seeing bodies like this is the conversation. I mean, the conversation completely takes a new form once you start generating tables of numbers and talking philosophically about this is important and this should be a priority and we should change A to B. Right. When these are sentences and paragraphs and bullet points, they can resonate with some part of the room or with all of the room. But just like we saw, they, they dropped the billion-dollar number for pre-K and some people who had been saying up to that point – we should go all in. Pre-K is important. It's my top priority. Some people will say, that's a billion. And then, you know. With a or, B. Right. <laughs> so, so eventually we'll see some of these proposals will end up being even more complicated than that. I mean, mm-hmm. that one has a bottom line sticker shock. Right. But potentially we'll see some other proposals that will say, let's change the way we do this from today to potentially tomorrow. Right. And now here's – Columns of numbers showing the winners and losers, and suddenly we'll have political stakeholders identified by geography or by demography that'll say suddenly, you know what, given the district I represent or given the area that my nonprofit serves or given the members of my union – I'm against that idea, even though on paper it sounded good right. a couple of weeks ago. Right. Now that we've seen the numbers, we got to rethink this whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the stuff that we have talked about in the past and that we are concerned with are, you know, changing weights, you know, for 
impoverished students or uh, special needs students, and then also wealth formulas, right? We've talked a lot about that, and we have a lot of counties who are concerned about the way wealth is calculated and therefore what your effort should be in terms of your contribution to public education. We haven't heard them talk about that yet. Uh, (laughs) That's still on the agenda as far as we know, but there has been nothing about the wealth formula. They haven't started peeling that onion, and that is one that once you start – I mean that's the right analogy because once you start getting into formula changes about, well, what do you do about tax increment financing? How do we we correctly measure wealth for purposes of ability to pay and so forth? Once you get into that, this isn't a matter of let's do a 90-minute presentation and now we can write the – final report. This is not that kind of subject. Exactly. And and if we're just holding on that and we'll talk about it, you know, around Halloween, um, there's gonna be there's gonna be a, a trick or treat at the end of that, I think. Maybe a trick. <laughs> a trick. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's what's going on with the Kerwin Commission. They have their next meeting on July twenty fifth. So that will be coming up in about a week. We'll keep you updated there. Again, Mako does have two representatives. We have uh, Montgomery County Council Member Craig Rice, and we have Allegheny County Commissioner Bill Valentine. So we do have a rural and urban representative there. And, you know, they're not even, I haven't really heard them talking about rural and urban stuff. They're talking about counties as a whole. And that's a good thing to see. And they've been very vocal, and they're speaking up about what this will mean for counties. So that's crucial and very important. So we're very plugged in. We're very much a part of this. But I think in terms of what Mako wants to see here, of course, we want to see our schools, you know, be among the best in the world and be able to compete on the on the world, you know, the world stage. Sure. But what we don't want to see happen in Maryland is a winners and losers situation. We want all boats to rise if any boat's going to rise. Right. So, I mean, this is going to be tricky, both tactically and politically. And so there's there's a lot of steps ahead. We've gotten, you know, we've, we've been poking fun a little bit at process and the commission and so forth. But as a practical matter, there's a lot of stake. There's a lot of stakeholders who care deeply about the school children, the outcomes from our school investments, the accountability that gets us from here to there. And that's a whole other subject that we yeah. could talk about. But there there is yeah. going to be an accountability component to this. They haven't decided how that's going to be, you know, ironed out yet, but that's another big piece of this that's yet to be decided. Right. So a lot of this, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll continue talking about it. There'll be other stakeholders, other stakeholders who are following this, you know, just as closely. Um, a lot of us are deeply invested. And again, once the General Assembly gets their hands on a bill, you know, you never know what's going to happen there. The sausage is made and, you know, people will have an opportunity right. to speak out during hearings and whatnot. And mm-hmm. so this is just one piece. Then it mm-hmm. has to go to the General Assembly. Yep. All right, so that'll do it for today's episode. I think, Michael, the plan will be to do part two of our new tech driving new policy for our next episode. That'll be out very soon. I will personally make sure to update all the podcast listeners on Michael's quest to find a cold beer today down at Taws. I'll let you know how it goes. Check our Twitter feed. I might, might be able to update you there as well. We'll see. We'll see. But until next time, Michael and Kevin signing off. Have a great day, and hopefully we'll see you down at Taws. 